The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So our last episode was on Whitman's love poetry. And today we will have uh, Whitman's poems about death, which I don't think will be quite as dour as you might imagine. If Whitman wrote love poetry like nobody ever has, I think we can also say that he wrote poems about death that uh, nobody has ever quite written before. And one thing that struck me about uh, his love poetry that I should have mentioned in that episode, but which bears mentioning here, is that if his poems about uh, a fulfilling love or romantic life or experience seem sort of idealized, the the the, uh, the young woman watching the bather, or uh, just ones of simple happiness, if they seem idealized and maybe even not convincing, or if they seem in a way to be a bit of wish fulfillment on Whitman's part, I think the, the answer for that, if we are to read it uh, as autobiography, at least a little bit, is because Whitman didn't experience that kind of fulfillment very often, or perhaps not at all. Uh, It was so difficult for him to do so. And if we then take that to look at these poems about death and creativity and uh, the sea and the other associations that he has with creativity and death, the songs of birds, things like that, and they sound immensely convincing. They sound like huge confessions. Um, An answer for that might be that he had a genuine experience of death all of his life, all around him, of people he loved dying, and then towards the end of his own life of experiencing his own bodily decline. And so we'll do something, uh, we'll go on quite a, a, a journey with this episode. I'm not quite sure how long it will be. But we will start with uh, two or three passages from Song of Myself. We'll work through some of Whitman's shorter poems about death after that, from the various editions of Leaves of Grass. And then we will end with his, uh, his great poems that seem to me to be about death. Uh, the poem called The Sleepers from the first edition of Leaves of Grass the two great poems of the sea and creativity of birth and death and his parents and his childhood memories and all of these things, the two poems that came to be known as As I Ebbed with the Ocean of Life and Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking, 
And then the very last one will be that great poem about the Civil War, about the death of Abraham Lincoln, and which seems to sum up, especially, we'll be able to see it especially here, if you put them all in order. Uh, when, the li when lilacs last and the dooryard bloomed really seems to be a great summing up of all of these poems about how he dealt with death. But let's get to Song of Myself first. As I mentioned, uh, there are a lot more love poems in, early in his career and a lot fewer ones later. And there are a lot more or a lot fewer poems about death very early on. And I only found two passages worth sharing from Song of Myself that are about death, but they are immensely memorable ones. And this is the first one. A child said, what is the grass? fetching it to me with full hands. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is, any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition, out of hopeful green stuff woven. Or I guess it is the handkerchief of the Lord, a scented gift and remembrancer designedly dropped, bearing the owner's name some way in the corners, that we may see and remark and say, whose? Or I guess the grass is itself a child, the produced babe of the vegetation. Or I guess it is a uniform hieroglyphic, and it means sprouting alike in broad zones and narrow zones, growing among black folks as among white, Canuck, Tuckahoe, Congressman, Cuff, I give them the same, I receive the same. And now it seems to me the beautiful uncut hair of graves. And then this passage, a few pages later in Song of Myself, says this. The smallest sprout shows there is really no death. And if ever there was, it led forward life, and does not wait at the end to arrest it, and ceased the moment life appeared. All goes onward and outward, and nothing collapses, and to die is different from what anyone supposed, and luckier. Has anyone supposed it lucky to be born? I hasten to inform him or her, it is just as lucky to die, and I know it. I pass death with the dying, and birth with the new-washed babe, and am not contained between my hat and boots, and peruse manifold objects, no two alike and every one good, the earth good and the stars good and their adjuncts all good. I am not an earth nor an adjunct of an earth. I am the mate and companion of people, all just as immortal and fathomless as myself. They do not know how immortal, but I know. And I will just take this moment to remind listeners that what I'm reading from are two books that I will give a link to in the post description. Two books I just edited for S4N Books, the selected long poems of Walt Whitman and the selected short poems. And uh, as I mentioned before, what I use in these, in these readings are the earliest published versions of these poems. Uh, 
since Whitman did spend the rest of his life revising them, and it seems that sometimes he revised a bit too much. So that oftentimes, as with these next few poems, I will give you the, uh, the more familiar title of a poem, as well as the uh, title that the poem first had. This next poem comes from the 1856 edition of Leaves of Grass. It came to be known simply as the compost, but in the uh, original it was titled Poem of Wonder at the Resurrection of the Wheat. Listen to this. This is wonderful. Something startles me where I thought I was safest. I withdraw from the still woods I loved. I will not go now on the pastures to walk. I will not strip my clothes from my body to meet my lover the sea. I will not touch my flesh to the earth, as to other flesh to renew me. How can the ground not sicken of men? How can you be alive, you growths of spring? How can you furnish health, you blood of herbs, roots, orchards, grain? Are they not continually putting distempered corpses in the earth? Is not every continent worked over and over with sour dead? Where have you disposed of those carcasses of the drunkards and gluttons of so many generations? Where have you drawn off all the foul liquid and meat? I do not see any of it upon you today, or perhaps I am deceived. I will run a furrow with my plow. I will press my spade through the sod and turn it up underneath. I am sure I shall expose some of the foul meat. Behold, this is the compost of billions of premature corpses. Perhaps every mite has once formed part of a sick person. Yet, behold, the grass covers the prairies, the beans burst noiselessly through the mold in the garden, the delicate spear of the onion pierces upward, the apple buds cluster together on the apple branches. The resurrection of the wheat appears with pale visage out of its graves. The tinge awakes over the willow tree and the mulberry tree. The he-birds carol mornings and evenings, while the she-birds sit on their nests. The young of poultry break through the hatched eggs. The newborn of animals appear. The calf is dropped from the cow, the colt from the mare. Out of its little hill faithfully rise the potatoes' dark green leaves. Out of its hill rises the yellow maize stalk. The summer growth is innocent and disdainful above all those strata of sour dead. What chemistry! That the winds are really not infectious. That this is no cheat, this transparent green wash of the sea which is so amorous after me, that it is safe to allow it to lick my naked body all over with its tongues, that it will not endanger me with the fevers that have deposited themselves in it, that all is clean forever and forever, that the cool drink from the well tastes so good, that blackberries are so flavorous and juicy, that the fruits of the apple orchard and of the orange orchard that melons, grapes, peaches, plums, will none of them poison me. That what I recline on the grass, that when I recline on the grass, I do not catch any disease, 
though probably every spear of grass rises out of what was once a catching disease. Now I am terrified at the earth. It is that calm and patient. It grows such sweet things out of such corruptions. It turns harmless and stainless on its axis with such endless successions of diseased corpses. It distills such exquisite winds out of such infused fetter. It renews with such unwitting looks its prodigal annual sumptuous crops. It gives such divine materials to men and accepts such leavings from them at last. And it strikes me that is the perfect answer about uh, 70 years ahead of time to the first line of the wasteland, TSLH, the wasteland. Uh, April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Uh, T.S. Eliot, or at least the speaker of that poem, of that part of the poem, is not sure what to make of all of this beautiful stuff that grows out of death. But uh, Mr. Whitman is perfectly fine with it, and he sees the beauty of what is going on. This next poem uh, was originally number 17 in the Leaves of Grass cluster. We're moving into the 1860 edition of Leaves of Grass. And it was originally number 17, but uh, in later editions it took on the title, I Sit and Look Out. I sit and look out upon all the sorrows of the world and upon all oppression and shame. I hear secret convulsive sobs from young men at anguish with themselves, remorseful after deeds done. I see in low life the mother misused by her children, dying, neglected, gaunt, desperate. I see the wife misused by her husband. I see the treacherous seducer of the young woman. I mark the ranklings of jealousy and unrequited love. Attempted to be hid, I see these sights on the earth. I see the workings of battle, pestilence, tyranny. I see martyrs and prisoners. I observe a famine at sea. I observe the sailors casting lots who shall be killed to preserve the lives of the rest. I observe the slights and degradations cast by arrogant persons upon laborers, the poor, and upon Negroes, and the like. All these, all the meanness and agony without end, I, sitting, look out upon, see, hear, and am silent. But of course, writing a poem like that, he is not silent at all. Let's see, I sit and look out. This next poem is was originally number two in the Calamus cluster. If you remember from the episode on love poetry, the Calamus cluster is probably Whitman's longest uh, collection of love poetry, and this was originally included in it, and ended up taking on the title Scented Herbage of My Breast. Scented Herbage of My Breast Leaves from you I yield, I write, 
to be pursued best afterwards. Tomb leaves, body leaves, growing up above me, above death. Perennial roots, tall leaves. Oh, the winter shall not freeze you, delicate leaves. Every year you, sh every year shall you bloom again. Out from where you retired, you shall emerge again. Oh, I do not know whether many passing by will discover you or inhale your faint odor, but I believe a few will. O oh, slender leaves, O oh, blossoms of my blood, I permit you to tell in your own way of the heart that is under you. O oh, burning and throbbing, surely all will one day be accomplished. I do not know what you mean. There, underneath yourselves, you are not happiness. You are often more bitter than I can bear. You burn and sting me. Yet you are very beautiful to me. You faint, tinged roots. You make me think of death. Death is beautiful from you. What indeed is beautiful except death and love? Oh, I think it is not for life I am chanting here my chant of lovers. I think it must be for death. For how calm, how solemn it grows to ascend the atmosphere of lovers. Death or life, I am then indifferent. My soul declines to prefer. I am not sure, but the high soul of lovers welcomes death most. Indeed, O oh death, I think now these leaves mean precisely the same as you mean. Grow up taller, sweet leaves, that I may see. Grow up out of my breast. Spring away from the concealed heart there. Do not fold yourselves so in your pink-tinged roots, timid leaves. Do not remain down there so ashamed, herbage of my breast. Come, I am determined to unbear this broad breast of mine. I have long enough stifled and choked. Emblematic and capricious blades I leave you. Now you serve me not. Away. I will say what I have to say. By itself. I will escape from the sham that was proposed to me. I will sound myself and comrades only. I will never again utter a call, only their call. I will raise with it the immortal reverberations through the states. I will give an example to lovers to take permanent shape and will through the states. Through me shall the words be said to make death exhilarating. Give me your tone, therefore, O death, that I may accord with it. Give me yourself, for I see that you belong to me now above all, and are folded together above all. You, love and death, are nor will I allow you to balk me any more with what I was calling life. For now it is conveyed to me that you are the purports essential, that you hide in these shifting forms of life for reasons, and that they are mainly for you, that you beyond them come forth to remain the real reality, that behind the mask of materials you patiently wait, no matter how long, and that you will one day, perhaps, take control of all, that you will, perhaps, dissipate this entire show of appearance. That may be, you are what is all for, what it is all for, but it does not last very long. But you will last very long.
further on here. This was number 17 in the Calamus cluster of poems, and later it was simply called Of Him I Love Day and Night. Of him I love day and night, I dreamed I heard he was dead, and I dreamed I went where they had buried him I love, but he was not in that place. And I dreamed I wandered, searching among burial places to find him. And I found that every place was a burial place. The houses full of life were equally full of death. This is, this house is now. The streets, the shipping, the places of amusement, the Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, the Manhattan, were as full of the dead as of the living, and fuller, oh, vastly fuller, of the dead than of the living. And what I dreamed I will henceforth tell to every person and age. And I stand henceforth bound to what I dreamed. And now I am willing to disregard burial places and to dispense with them. And if the memorials of the dead were put up indifferently everywhere, even in the room where I eat or sleep, I should be satisfied. And if the corpse of any one I love, or if my own corpse be duly rendered to powder, and poured in the sea, I shall be satisfied, or if it be distributed to the winds, I shall be satisfied. This is a poem that was called, originally called To My Soul, but uh, later took the title, As the Time Draws Nigh. As nearing departure, as the time draws nigh, glooming from you a cloud, a dread beyond, of I know not what darkens me. I shall go forth, I shall traverse the states, but I cannot tell whither or how long. Perhaps soon, some day or night, while I am singing, my voice will suddenly cease. O oh, soul, then all may arrive too but this, the glances of my eyes that swept the daylight, the unspeakable love I interchanged with women, my joys in the open air, my walks through the Manhattan, the continual goodwill I have met, the curious attachment of young men to me, my reflections alone, the absorption into me from the landscape, stars, animals, thunder, rain, and snow, and my wanderings alone, the words of my mouth, rude, ignorant, arrogant, my many faults and derelictions, the light touches on my lips, of the lips of my comrades at parting, the tracks which I leave upon the sidewalks and fields, may but arrive at this beginning of me, this beginning of me. And yet it is enough, O soul, O soul, we have positively appeared. That is enough. And this next poem, I believe, is the last poem in the 1860 edition of Leaves of Grass. And it is called So Long, and it retained that title and all subsequent editions. To conclude, 
I announce what comes after me. The thought must be promulged. That all I know at any time suffices for that time only, not subsequent time. I announce greater offspring, orators, days, and then depart. I remember I said to myself at the winter close, before my leaves sprang at all, that I would become a candid and unloosed summer poet. I said I would raise my voice jocund and strong with reference to consummations. When America does what was promised, when each part is peopled with free people, when there is no city on earth to lead my city, the city of young men, the Manhattan city, but when the Manhattan leaves all, leads all the cities of the earth, when there are plentiful athletic bards inland and seaboard, when through these states walk a hundred millions of superb persons, when the rest part for superb persons and contribute to them, and when fathers, firm, unconstrained, open-eyed, when breeds of the most perfect mothers denote America, then, to me, ripeness and conclusion. Yet not me, after all. Let none be content with me. I myself seek a man better than I am, or a woman better than I am. I invite defiance, and to make myself superseded. All I have done I would cheerfully give to be trod underfoot, if it might only be the soil of superior poems. I have established nothing for good. I have but established these things, till things farther onward shall be prepared to be established. And I am myself the preparer of things farther onward. I have pressed through in my own right. I have offered my style to everyone. I have journeyed with confident step, while my pleasure is yet at the full. So I whisper, so long, and take the young woman's hand and the young man's hand for the last time. Once more I enforce you to give play to yourself and not depend on me or on anyone but yourself. Once more I proclaim the whole of America for each individual without exception. As I have announced the true theory of the youth, manhood, womanhood of the states, I adhere to it. As I have announced myself on immortality, the body, procreation, hauteur, prudence, as I joined the stern crowd that still confronts the president with menacing weapons, I adhere to all. As I have announced each age for itself, this moment I set the example. I demand the choicest edifices to destroy them. Room, room for the new far-planning draughtsmen and engineers. Clear that rubbish from the building spots and the paths. So long. I announce natural justice. I announce natural persons to arise. I announce justice triumphant. I announce uncompromising liberty and equality. I announce the justification of candor and the justification of pride. I announce that the identity of these states is a single identity only. I announce the union more and more compact. I announce splendors and majesties to make all the previous politics of the earth insignificant. I announce adhesiveness. I say it shall be limitless, unloosened. I say you shall yet find the friend you was looking for. So long. I announce a man or a woman coming 
perhaps you are the one. I announce a great individual, fluid as nature, chaste, affectionate, compassionate, fully armed, so long. I announce a life that shall be copious, vehement, spiritual, bold, and I announce an old age that shall lightly and joyfully meet its translation. O oh, thicker and faster, O oh, crowding too close upon me, I foresee too much. It means more than I thought. It appears to me I am dying. Now, throat, sound your last. Salute me, salute the future once more. Peel the old cry once more. Screaming electric, the atmosphere using, at random glancing, each as I notice absorbing, swiftly on, but a little while alighting, curious, enveloped messages delivering, sparkles hot, seed ethereal, down in the dirt dropping, myself unknowing, my commission obeying, to question it, never daring, to ages and ages yet, the growth of the seed leaving, to troops out of me rising, they the tasks I have set promulging, to women certain whispers of myself bequeathing, their affection me more clearly explaining, to young men my problems offering, no dallier I, I the muscle of their brains trying. So I pass, a little time vocal, visible, contrary, Afterward, a melodious echo, passionately bent for, death making me undying. The best of me then, when no longer visible, for toward that I have been incessantly preparing. What is there more that I lag and pause and crouch, extended with unshut mouth? Is there a single final farewell? My songs cease, I abandon them. From behind the screen where I hid, I advance personally. This is no book. Who touches this touches a man. Is it night? Are we here alone? It is I you hold, and who holds you. I spring from the pages into your arms. Decease calls me forth. Oh, how your fingers drowse me. Your breath falls around me like dew. Your pulse lulls the tympans of my ears. I feel emerged from head to foot. Delicious. Enough. Enough, O oh, deed impromptu and secret. Enough, O oh, gliding present. Enough, O oh, summed up past. Dear friend, whoever you are here, take this kiss. I give it especially to you. Do not forget me. I feel like one who has done his work. I progress on, the unknown sphere, more real than I dreamed, more direct, darts awakening rays around me. So long, remember my words, I love you, I depart from materials, I am as one disembodied, triumphant, dead. What a completely bizarre and miraculous poem that is uh, to turn it all around onto death. Uh, this here is one poem, this next one, we're on to much shorter ones now, there's only a few left here, all little one-page or half-page poems. Um, this next one is called 
Not youth pertains to me, and it's from Drum Taps in 1865, and it retained that title all throughout. Not youth pertains to me, nor delicatesse. I cannot beguile the time with talk, awkward in the parlor, neither a dancer nor elegant, in the learned coterie sitting constrained and still, for learning in yours, not to me, beauty, knowledge, fortune, in your not to me, yet there are two things in your to me. I have nourished the wounded and soothed many a dying soldier, and at intervals I have strung together a few songs, fit for war and the life of the camp. So it's interesting to hear that poem immediately after so long, the so long uh, now being all the time Whitman has spent in the war with the dying soldiers. Um, these next poems come from the 1881 edition of Leaves of Grass. Let me find it here. Um, the first one is called Old War Dreams. These last few poems are either about the war or Whitman's own decline, and this one is about the war itself. In midnight sleep of many a face of anguish, of the look at first of the mortally wounded, of that indescribable look, of the dead on their backs with arms extended wide, I dream, I dream, I dream. Of scenes of nature, fields and mountains, of sky so beauteous after a storm, and at night the moon so unearthly bright, shining sweetly, shining down, where we dig the trenches and gather the heaps. I dream, I dream, I dream. Long have they passed, faces and trenches and fields, where through the carnage I moved with a callous composure, or away from the fallen. Onward I sped at the time, but now of their forms at night. I dream, I dream, I dream. And this next one is called, As at Thy Portals Also, Death. As at Thy Portals Also, Death, Entering Thy Sovereign, Dim, Illimitable Grounds, To Memories of My Mother, to the divine blending, maternity, to her, buried and gone, yet buried not, gone not from me. I see again the calm, benignant face, fresh and beautiful still. I sit by the form in the coffin. I kiss and kiss convulsively again the sweet old lips, the cheeks, the closed eyes, and the coffin. To her, the ideal woman, practical, spiritual, of all of earth, life, love, to me the best, I grave a monumental line before I go amid these songs and set a tombstone here. And to me, if you go and read Allen Ginsberg's poem Kaddish, uh, he seems to have caught the tone of Whitman here in parts of that poem about uh, Ginsberg's own mother. Um, and this is from these last three short poems are from the last edition of Leaves of Grass from 1892 let's see 
This is a carol closing 69. A carol closing 69, a resume, a repetition. My lines in joy and hope continuing on the same. Of ye, O God, life, nature, freedom, poetry. Of you, my land, your rivers, prairies, states. You, mottled flag, I love. You, aggregate, retained entire of north, south, east, and west, your items all, of me, myself, the jocund heart, yet beating in my breast, the body wrecked, old, poor, and paralyzed, the strange inertia falling pall-like around me, the burning fires down in my sluggish blood not yet extinct, the undiminished faith, the groups of loving friends. The door is closing a bit here. And the next poem is, As I Sit Writing Here. As I sit writing here, sick and grown old, not my least burden is that dullness of the ears, querilities, ungracious glooms, aches, lethargy, constipation, whimpering ennui, may filter in my daily songs. And then, this is a poem called Supplement Hours, and uh, the note to it that I have here says that the poem was written around 1891, was not included in Leaves of Grass, but it was published in 1897 after Whitman's death, with 12 other previously unpublished poems under the title Old Age Echoes. And... This is what it says, supplement hours. And so after this poem, I will go on to the great long poems, as I mentioned. Um, as I ebbed with the ocean of life, out of the cradle endlessly rocking, and then, and then when lilacs last and the dooryard bloomed. So thank you for listening this far, if you have. This is supplement hours. Sane, random, negligent hours. Sane, easy, culminating hours. After the flush, the Indian summer of my life. Away from books, away from art. The lesson learned, passed over. Soothing, bathing, merging all. The sane, magnetic. Now for the day and night themselves, the open air. Now for the fields, the seasons, insects, trees, the rain and snow, where wild bees flitting hum, or August mullions grow, or winter's snowflakes fall, or stars in the skies roll round, the silent sun and stars. The Sleepers by Walt Whitman I wander all night in my vision, stepping with light feet, swiftly and noiselessly stepping and stopping, bending with open eyes over the shut eyes of sleepers.
wandering and confused, lost to myself, ill-assorted, contradictory, pausing and gazing and bending and stopping. How solemn they look there, stretched and still, how quiet they breathe, the little children in their cradles, the wretched features of ennuis, the white features of corpses, the livid faces of drunkards, the sick gray faces of onanists, the gashed bodies on battlefields, the insane in their strong-doored rooms, the sacred idiots, the newborn emerging from gates and the dying emerging from gates. The night pervades them and enfolds them. The married couple sleeps calmly in their bed, he with his palm on the hip of his wife, and she with her palm on the hip of the husband. The sisters sleep lovingly side by side in their bed, the men sleep lovingly side by side in theirs, and the mother sleeps with her little child carefully wrapped. The blind sleep and the deaf and dumb sleep. The prisoner sleeps well in the prison. The runaway son sleeps. The murderer that is to be hung next day. How does he sleep? And the murdered person. How does he sleep? The female that loves unrequited sleeps. And the male that loves unrequited sleeps. The head of the money-maker that plotted all day sleeps, and the enraged and treacherous dispositions sleep. I stand with drooping eyes by the worst suffering and restless. I pass my hands soothingly to and fro a few inches from them. The restless sink in their beds. They fitfully sleep. The earth recedes from me into the night. I saw that it was beautiful, and I see that what is not the earth is beautiful. I go from bedside to bedside. I sleep close with the other sleepers, each in turn. I dream in my dream all the dreams of the other dreamers, and I become the other dreamers. I am a dance, play up there. The fit is whirling me fast. I am the ever-laughing. It is the new moon and twilight. I see the hiding of douciers. I see the nimble ghosts, whichever way I look. Cash and cash again deep in the ground and sea. And where it is neither ground or sea. Well do they do their jobs, those journeymen divine. Only for me can they hide nothing and would not if they could. I reckon I am their boss, and they make me a pet besides, and surround me and lead me and run ahead when I walk, and lift their cunning covers and signify me with stretched arms, and resume the way. Onward we move a gay gang of black guards with mirth-shouting music and wild flapping pennants of joy. I am the actor and the actress, the voter, the politician, the emigrant and the exile, the criminal that stood in the box, he who has been famous 
and he who shall be famous after today. The stammerer, the well-formed person, the wasted or feeble person. I am she who adorned herself and folded her hair expectantly. My truant lover has come and it is dark. Double yourself and receive me darkness. Receive me with my lover too. He will not let me go without him. I roll myself upon you as upon a bed. I resign myself to the dusk. He whom I call answers me and takes the place of my lover. He rises with me silently from the bed. Darkness, you are gentler than my lover. His flesh was sweaty and panting. I feel the hot moisture yet that he left me. My hands are spread forth. I pass them in all directions. I would sound up the shadowy shore to which you are journeying. Be careful, darkness. Already, what was it touched me? I thought my lover had gone, else darkness and he are one. I hear the heartbeat. I follow. I fade away. O oh, hot-cheeked and blushing, O oh, foolish hectic, O oh, for pity's sake, no one must see me now. My clothes were stolen while I was abed. Now I am thrust forth, where shall I run? Peer that I saw dimly last night when I looked from the windows. Peer out from the main. Let me catch myself with you and stay. I will not chafe you. I feel ashamed to go naked about the world, and am curious to know where my feet stand. And what is this flooding me, childhood or manhood? and the hunger that crosses the bridge between. The cloth laps a first sweet, eating and drinking, laps life-swelling yolks, laps ear of rose corn, milky and just ripened. The white teeth stay, and the boss tooth advances in darkness, and liquor is spilled on lips and bosoms by touching glasses, and the best liquor afterward. I descend my western course, my sinews are flaccid, perfume and youth course through me, and I am their wake. It is my face yellow and wrinkled instead of the old woman's. I sit low in a straw-bottomed chair and carefully darn my grandson's stockings. It is I, too, the sleepless widow, looking out on the winter midnight. I see the sparkles of starshine on the icy and pallid earth. A shroud I see, and I am the shroud. I wrap a body and lie in the coffin. It is dark here, underground. It is not evil or pain here. It is blank here, for reasons. It seems to me that everything in the light and air ought to be happy. Whoever is not in his coffin in the dark grave, let him know he has enough. I see a beautiful, gigantic swimmer swimming naked through the eddies of the sea. His brown hair lies close and even to his head. He strikes out with courageous arms. He urges himself with his legs. 
I see his white body, I see his undaunted eyes, I hate the swift running eddies that would dash him head foremost on the rocks. What are you doing, you ruffianly red trickled waves? Will you kill the courageous giant? Will you kill him in the prime of his middle age? Steady and long he struggles. He is baffled and banged and bruised. He holds out while his strength holds out. The slapping eddies are spotted with his blood. They bear him away. They roll him and swing him and turn him. His beautiful body is born in the circling eddies. It is continually bruised on the rocks. Swiftly and out of sight is born the brave corpse. I turn, but do not extricate myself. Confused, a past reading, another, but with darkness yet. The beach is cut by the razory ice wind. The wreck gun sounds, the tempest lulls, and the moon comes floundering through the drifts. I look where the ship helplessly heads and on. I hear the burst as she strikes. I hear the howls of dismay. They grow fainter and fainter. I cannot aid with my ringing fingers. I can but rush to the surf and let it drench me and freeze upon me. I search with the crowd. Not one of the company is washed to us alive. In the morning I help pick up the dead and lay them in rows in a barn. Now of the old war days, the defeat at Brooklyn, Washington stands inside the lines. He stands on the entrenched hills amid a crowd of officers. His face is cold and damp. He cannot repress the weeping drops. He lifts the glass perpetually to his eyes. The color is blanched from his cheeks. He sees the slaughter of the southern braves confided to him by their parents. The same at last and at last when peace is declared, he stands in the room of the old tavern, the well-beloved soldiers all pass through. The officers speechless and slow draw near in their turns. The chief encircles their necks with his arms and kisses them on the cheek. He kisses lightly the wet cheeks, one after another. He shakes hands and bids goodbye to the army. Now I tell what my mother told me today, as we sat at dinner together, of when she was a nearly grown girl living home with her parents on the old homestead. A red squaw came one breakfast time to the old homestead. On her back she carried a bundle of rushes for rush-bottoming chairs. Her straight, shiny, coarse, black, and profuse half-enveloped her face. Her step was free and elastic. Her voice sounded exquisitely as she spoke. My mother looked in delight and amazement at the stranger. She looked at the beauty of her tall-born face and full and pliant limbs. And the more she looked upon her, she loved her. Never before had she seen such wonderful beauty and purity. She made her sit on the bench by the jam of the fireplace. She cooked food for her. 
She had no work to give her, but she gave her remembrance and fondness. The red squaw stayed all afternoon, and toward the middle of the afternoon she went away. Oh, my mother was loath to have her go away. All the week she thought of her. She watched for her many a month. She remembered her many a winter and many a summer. But the red squaw never came nor was heard of there again. Now Lucifer was not dead, or if he was, I am his sorrowful, terrible heir. I have been wronged. I am oppressed. I hate him that oppresses me. I will either destroy him, or he shall release me. Damn him! How does he defile me? How he informs against my brother and sister, and takes pay for their blood. How he laughs when I look down the bend after the steamboat that carries away my woman. Now the vast dusk bulk that is the whale's bulk, it seems mine. Wirily, sportsman, though I lie so sleepy and sluggish, my tap is death. A show of the summer softness, a contact of something unseen, an amour of the light and air. I am jealous and overwhelmed with friendliness, and will go gallivant with the light and the air myself, and have an unseen something to be in contact with them also. Oh, love and summer, you are in the dreams and in me. Autumn and winter in the dreams. The farmer goes with his thrift. The droves and crops increase. The barns are well filled. Elements merge in the night. Ships make tacks in the dreams. The sailor sails. The exile returns home. The fugitive returns unharmed. The immigrant is back beyond months and years. The poor Irishman lives in the simple house of his childhood with the well-known neighbors and faces. They warmly welcome him. He is barefoot again. He forgets he is well off. The Dutchman voyages home, and the Scotchman and Welchman voyage home, and the native of the Mediterranean voyages home. To every port of England and France, and Spain enter well-filled ships. The Swiss foots it towards his hills. The Prussian goes his way, and the Hungarian his way, and the Pole goes his way. The Swede returns, and the Dane and Norwegian return. The homeward bound and the outward bound. The beautiful lost swimmer, the ennui, the onanist, the female that loves unrequited, the moneymaker, the actor and actress, those through with their parts and those waiting to commence, the affectionate boy, the husband and wife, the voter, the nominee that is chosen, the nominee that has failed, the great already known and the great any time after today, the stammerer, the sick, the perfect formed, the homely, the criminal that stood in the box, the judge that sat and sentenced him, the fluent lawyers, the jury, the audience, the laugher and weeper, the dancer, the midnight widow, the red squaw, the consumptive, the erysipelate, the idiot, he that is wronged, the antipodes, and everyone between this and them in the dark, I swear. They are avenged now. 
One is no better than the other. The night and sleep have likened them and restored them. I swear, they are all beautiful. Everyone that sleeps is beautiful. Everything in the dim night is beautiful. The wildest and bloodiest is over, and all is peace. Peace is always beautiful. The myth of heaven indicates peace and night. The myth of heaven indicates the soul. The soul is always beautiful. It appears more or it appears less. It comes or lags behind. It comes from its embowered garden and looks pleasantly on itself and encloses the world. Perfect and clean, the genitals previously jetting, and perfect and clean, the womb cohering, the head well grown and proportioned and plumb, and the bowels and joints proportioned and plumb. The soul is always beautiful. The universe is duly in order. Everything is in its place. What has arrived is in its place, and what waits is in its place. The twisted skull waits. The watery or rotten blood waits. The child of the glutton or venerally waits long. And the child of the drunkard waits long. And the drunkard himself waits long. The sleepers that lived and died wait. The far advanced are to go on in their turns. And the far behind are to go on in their turns. The diverse shall be no less diverse. But they shall flow and unite. They unite now. The sleepers are very beautiful as they lie unclothed. They flow hand in hand over the whole earth from east to west as they lie unclothed. The Asiatic and African are hand in hand. The European and American are hand in hand. Learned and unlearned are hand in hand. And male and female are hand in hand. The bare arm of the girl crosses the bare breast of her lover. They press close without lust. His lips press her neck. The father holds his grown or ungrown son in his arms with measureless love. And the son holds his father in his arms with measureless love. The white hair of the mother shines on the white wrist of the daughter. The breath of the boy goes with the breath of the man. Friend is inarmed by friend. The scholar kisses the teacher, the teacher kisses the scholar. The wronged is made right. The call of the slave is one with the master's call, and the master salutes the slave. The felon steps forth from the prison, the insane becomes sane, the suffering of sick persons is relieved. The sweatings and fevers stop. The throat that was unsound is sound. The lungs of the consumptive are resumed. The poor, distressed head is free. The joints of the rheumatic move as smoothly as ever, and smoother than ever. 
stiflings and passages open. The paralyzed become supple. The swelled and convulsed and congested awake to themselves in condition. They pass the invigoration of the night and the chemistry of the night and awake. I, too, pass from the night. I stay a while away, O night, but I return to you again and love you. Why should I be afraid to trust myself to you? I am not afraid. I have been well brought forward by you. I love the rich running day, but I do not desert her in whom I lay so long. I know not how I came of you, and I know not where I go with you, but I know I came well and shall go well. I will stop only a time with the night and rise betimes. I will duly pass the day, O my mother, and duly return to you. Not you will yield forth the dawn again more surely than you will yield forth me again. Not the womb yields the babe in its time more surely than I shall be yielded from you in my time. As I Ebbed with the Ocean of Life by Walt Whitman Elemental Drifts Oh, I wish I could impress others as you and the waves have just been impressing me. As I ebbed with an ebb of the ocean of life, as I wended the shores I know, as I walked where the sea ripples wash you, Palmanach, where they rustle up, hoarse and sibilant, where the fierce old mother endlessly cries for her castaways. I, musing, late in the autumn day, gazing off southward, alone, held by the eternal self of me that threatens to get the better of me and stifle me, was seized by the spirit that trails in the lines underfoot, in the rim, the sediment, that stands for all the water and all the land of the globe. Fascinated, my eyes, reverting from the south, dropped to follow those slender windrows, chaff, straw, splinters of wood, weeds, and the sea gluten, scum, scales from shining rocks, leaves of salt lettuce left by the tide, miles walking, the sound of breaking waves, the other side of me. Palmanach, there and then, as I thought the old thought of likenesses, these you presented to me, you fish-shaped island, as I wended the shores I know, as I walked with that eternal self of me, seeking types. As I wend the shores I know not, as I listen to the dirge, the voices of men and women wrecked, as I inhale the impalpable breezes, that set in upon me, as the ocean so mysterious rolls toward me closer and closer, at once I find the least thing that belongs to me, or that I see or touch, I know not. I, too, but signify, at the utmost, 
a little washed up drift, a few sands and dead leaves together, gather and merge myself as part of the sands and drift. Oh, baffled, balked, bent to the very earth, here preceding what follows, oppressed with myself that I have dared to open my mouth, aware now that, amid all the blab whose echoes recoil upon me, I have not once had the least idea who or what I am, but that before all my insolent poems the real me still stands untouched, untold, altogether unreached, with it withdrawn far, mocking me with mock congratulatory signs and bows, with peals of distant ironical laughter at every word I have written or shall write, striking me with insults till I fall helpless upon the sand. Oh, I perceive I have not understood anything, not a single object, and that no man ever can. I perceive nature here in sight of the sea is taking advantage of me to dart upon me and sting me because I was assuming so much and because I have dared to open my mouth to sing at all. You oceans both, you tangible land, nature, be not too rough with me, I submit, I close with you. These little shreds shall indeed stand for all. You friable shore with trail of debris, you fish-shaped island, I take what is underfoot, what is yours is mine, my father. I too, Pomenoc, I too have bubbled up, floated the measureless float, and been washed on your shores. I too am but a trail of drift and debris, I too leave wrecks upon you, you fish-shaped island. I throw myself upon your breast, my father. I cling to you so that you cannot unloose me. I hold you so firm till you answer me something. Kiss me, my father. Touch me with your lips as I touch those I love. Breathe to me while I hold you close, the secret of the wondrous murmuring I envy. For fear I shall become crazed if I cannot emulate it and utter myself as well as it. Sea raff, crooked-tongued waves, oh, I will yet sing some day what you have said to me. Ebb, ocean of life, the flow will return. Cease not your moaning, you fierce old mother. Endlessly cry for your castaways, but fear not, deny not me. Rustle not up so hoarse and angry against my feet as I touch you or gather from you. I mean tenderly by you. I gather for myself and for this phantom, looking down where we lead and following me and mine. Me and mine, we, loose windrows, little corpses, froth, snowy white, and bubbles, see? From my dead lips the ooze exuding at last. See the prismatic colors glistening and rolling. Tufts of straw, sands, fragments, buoyed hither from many moods, one contradicting another, from the storm, 
the long calm, the darkness, the swell, musing, pondering, a breath, a briny tear, a dab of liquid or soil, up just as much out of fathomless workings fermented and thrown, a limp blossom or two, torn, just as much over waves floating, drifted at random, just as much for us that sobbing dirge of nature, just as much whence we come that blare of the cloud trumpets, we, capricious, brought hither, we know not whence, spread out before you, up there, walking or sitting, whoever you are, we too lie in drifts at your feet. So Walt Whitman first published Leaves of Grass in 1855. The great poem to come out of the 1856 edition of Leaves of Grass is the poem that has come to be called Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. And perhaps the greatest edition, the best edition of Leaves of Grass is the one of 1860. There are so many good short poems in there that, have, that I've already read in this episode on Whitman's poems about death, as well as the episode on his love poetry. But there are also two immense long poems in the 1860 Leaves of Grass. And that is, uh, and they are the poems that came to be called As I Ebbed with the Ocean of Life and Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking. Now, one thing that you do lose, at least in the, in the case of Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking, by reading the earliest edition, is that you lose that, uh, that line. Uh, in the revised version of the poem, the first line of it is, out of the cradle, endlessly rocking. But as you're about to hear, that was not the original first line. The original title of this poem was A Word Out of the Sea. And I think that, and even though it is just me reading this, I'm not a professional reader uh, by any means, but uh, the three poems that will end this episode, and I suppose hearing the sleepers as well beforehand, um, hearing the sleepers as I ebbed with the ocean of life, out of the cradle endlessly rocking, and then when lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed, um, you're put into a different place. It is an education in itself. It is an emotional experience in itself. And so I will just get on with Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking. Out of the rocked cradle, out of the mockingbird's throat, the musical shuttle, out of the boy's mother's womb and from the nipples of her breasts, out of the ninth month midnight, over the sterile sands and the fields beyond, where the child, leaving his bed, wandered alone, bareheaded, barefoot, down from the showered halo, up from the mystic play of shadows, twining and twisting as if he were alive, out from the patches of briars and blackberries, from the memories of the bird that chanted to me, 
from your memories, sad brother, from the fitful risings and fallings I heard, from under the yellow half-moon late risen, and swollen as if with tears, from those beginning notes of sickness and love, there in the transparent mist, from the thousand responses of my heart, never to cease, from the myriad thence aroused words, from the word stronger and more delicious than any, from such as now they start, the scene revisiting, as a flock twittering, rising, or overhead passing, born hither, ere all eludes me hurriedly, a man, yet by these tears a little boy again, throwing myself on the sand, confronting the waves, I, chanter of pains and joys, uniter of here and hereafter, taking all hints to use them, but swiftly leaping beyond them, a reminiscence I sing. And the rest of the poem, I believe, is called A Reminiscence. Once, Palmanach, when the snows had melted, and the fifth-month grass was growing, up this seashore in some briars, two guests from Alabama, two together, and their nest, and four light green eggs spotted with brown, and every day the he-bird to and fro near at hand, and every day the she-bird crouched on her nest silent with bright eyes. And every day I, a curious boy, never too close, never disturbing them, cautiously peering, absorbing, translating. Shine, shine, pour down your warmth, great sun, while we bask, we two together. Two together, winds blow south or winds blow north, day come white or night come black, home or rivers and mountains from home, singing all time, minding no time, if we two but keep together. Till of a sudden, maybe killed, unknown to her mate, one forenoon the she-bird crouched not on the nest, nor returned that afternoon, nor the next, nor ever appeared again. And thenceforward, all summer, in the sound of the sea, and at night, under the full of the moon and calmer weather, over the hoarse surging of the sea, or flitting from briar to briar by day, I saw, I heard at intervals, the remaining one, the he-bird, the solitary guest from Alabama. Blow, blow, blow up sea winds along Palmanach's shore. I wait and I wait till you blow my mate to me. Yes, when the stars glistened all night long on the prong of a moss-scalloped stake, down almost amid the slapping waves sat the lone singer, wonderful, causing tears. He called on his mate. He poured forth the meanings which I, of all men, know. Yes, my brother, I know. The rest might not, but I have treasured every note. For once, and more than once, dimly, down to the beach gliding, silent, avoiding the moonbeams, blending myself with the shadows, 
recalling now the obscure shapes, the echoes, the sounds, and sights after their sorts, the white arms out in the breakers tirelessly tossing, I with bare feet, a child, the wind wafting my hair, listened long and long, listened to keep, to sing, now translating the notes, following you, my brother. Soothe, soothe, close, close on its wave, soothes the wave behind, and again another behind, embracing and lapping everyone close, but my love soothes not me. Low hangs the moon, it rose late. Oh, it is lagging, oh, it is lagging. Oh, I think it is heavy with love. Oh, madly the sea pushes upon the land with love, with love. Oh, night, oh, do I not see my love fluttering out there among the breakers? What is that little black thing I see there in the white? Loud, loud, loud I call to you, my love. High and clear I shoot my voice over the waves. Surely you must know who is here. You must know who I am, my love. Low hanging moon, what is it, that dusky spot in your brown yellow? Oh, it is the shape of my mate. O oh, moon, do not keep her from me any longer. Land, O oh, land, whichever way I turn, oh, I think you could give me my mate back again if you would, for I am almost sure I see her dimly, whichever way I look. O oh, rising stars, perhaps the one I want so much will rise with some of you. O oh, throat, sound clearer through the atmosphere, pierce the woods, the earth, somewhere listening to catch, you must be the one I want. Shake out carols, solitary here, the night's carols, carols of lonesome love, death's carols, carols under that lagging yellow waning moon. Oh, under that moon, where she droops almost down into the sea, oh, reckless, despairing carols. But soft, sink low, soft, soft, let me just murmur, and do you wait a moment, you husky noise to see, for somewhere, I believe, I heard my mate responding to me, so faint I must be still to listen, but not altogether still, for then she might not come immediately to me. Hither, my love, here I am, here, with this just sustained note, I announce myself to you, this gentle call is for you, my love. Do not be decoyed elsewhere. That is the whistle of the wind. It is not my voice. That is the fluttering of the spray. Those are the shadows of the leaves. Oh, darkness, oh, in vain. Oh, I am very sick and sorrowful. Oh, brown halo in the sky, near the moon, drooping upon the sea, O oh, troubled reflection in the sea, O oh, throat, O oh, throbbing heart, O oh, all, and I, singing uselessly all the night. 
murmur, murmur on. Oh, murmurs, you yourselves make me continue to sing, I know not why. Oh, past, oh, joy, in the air, in the woods, over fields, loved, 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 but no more with me, we two together, no more. That is the end of the bird's song. And Whitman picks up his own voice here. The aria sinking, all else continuing, the stars shining, the winds blowing, the notes of the wondrous bird echoing. With angry moans, the fierce old mother yet, as ever, incessantly moaning. On the sands of Palmanach shore, gray and rustling, the yellow half-moon enlarged, sagging down, drooping, the face of the sea almost touching, the boy ecstatic, with his bare feet the waves, with his hair the atmosphere dallying, the love in the heart pent, now loose, now at last, tumultuously bursting, the aria's meaning, the ears, the soul, swiftly depositing, the strange tears down the cheeks coursing, the colloquy there, the trio, each uttering, the undertone, the savage old mother, incessantly crying, to the boy soul's question sullenly timing, some drowned secret hissing, to the outsetting bard of love. Bird, then said the boy soul, is it indeed toward your mate you sing, or is it mostly to me? For I that was a child, my tongue's use sleeping, now that I have heard you, now in a moment I know what I am for, I awake, and already a thousand singers, a thousand songs, clearer, louder, more sorrowful than yours, a thousand warbling echoes have started to life within me, never to die. O oh, throes, O oh, you demon singing by yourself, projecting me, O oh, solitary me, listening. Nevermore shall I cease imitating, perpetuating you. Nevermore shall I escape. Nevermore shall the reverberations, nevermore the cries of a unsatisfied love be absent from me. Never again leave me to be the peaceful child I was, before what there in the night by the sea under the yellow and sagging moon the dusky demon aroused the fire the sweet hell within the unknown want the destiny of me oh give me some clue oh if i am to have so much let me have more oh a word oh what is my destination oh i fear it is henceforth chaos. Oh, how joys, dreads, convolutions, human shapes, and all shapes, spring as from graves around me. Oh, phantoms, you cover all the land and all the sea. Oh, I cannot see in the dimness whether you smile or frown upon me. Oh, vapor, a look, a word. Oh, well-beloved, 
O you dear women's and men's phantoms. A word, then, for I will conquer it, the word final, superior to all, subtle, sent up. What is it? I listen. Are you whispering it, and have been all the time, you sea waves? Is it that from your liquid rims and wet sands? Answering the sea, delaying not, hurrying not, whispered me through the night, and very plainly before daybreak, lisped to me constantly the low and delicious word, death, and again death, ever death, 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 hissing melodious, neither like the bird, nor like my aroused child's heart, but edging near, as privately for me, rustling at my feet, and creeping thence steadily up to my ears, death, 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 death. Which I do not forget, but fuse the song of two together, that was sung to me in the moonlight on Palmanach's gray beach, with the thousand responsive songs at random, my own songs awaked from that hour, and with them the key, the word up from the waves, the word of the sweetest song in all songs, that strong and delicious word which, creeping to my feet, the sea whispered me. And aren't we lucky to have that in the English language? We don't have to experience that in translation or through anyone else's eyes or words or attempts at translation. We have that in English, um, and uh, there is no barrier between us and those words. I'll read this, these two stanzas again just, uh, just to give Whitman's origin story on its own. I can't remember from his biographies if this is meant to be taken seriously, if this is a real memory of Whitman's or not, but um, people are allowed to make their own myths, and whether or not Whitman did this or not, it is immensely powerful stuff. For I that was a child, my tongue's use sleeping, now that I have heard you, now in a moment I know what I am for. I awake, and already a thousand singers, a thousand songs, clearer, louder, more sorrowful than yours, a thousand warbling echoes have started to life within me, never to die. And look at what he says there, um, the songs that have been awakened in him, clearer, louder, and more sorrowful, more sorrowful than yours. The cliché, the one that I've even fallen prey to in the last year, that Whitman is nothing but a prophet of joy and exuberance, uh, simply is not true. Um, o throws, O you demon, singing by yourself, projecting me, O solitary me, listening, nevermore shall I cease imitating, perpetuating you, nevermore shall I escape 
Nevermore shall the reverberations, nevermore the cries of unsatisfied love, be absent from me. And there's the clue to the episode on love poetry, is that he says it right here. Nevermore the cries of unsatisfied love be absent from me. He found it and imitated it in these in these birds that he saw. Never again lead me to the peaceful child to be, never again lead me to be the peaceful child I was before, what there, in the night, by the sea, under the yellow and sagging moon, the dusky demon aroused, the fire, the sweet hell within, the unknown want, the destiny of me. And I'll even reread those last four lines, and you can hear the sound of descent, the sound of something going down, down, down. Never again leave me to be the peaceful child I was before what there, in the night, by the sea, under the yellow and sagging moon, the dusky demon aroused, the fire, the sweet hell within, the unknown want, the destiny of me. And Whitman seems to say, the destiny of me, perhaps also the destiny of all of you. Whether you're a poet or not, one of the great truths about Walt Whitman seems to be that he makes us want to talk about ourselves in relation to him, our relationship with him, so that in introducing what many consider to be his, uh, his best poem, it brings, or it takes me back, actually, it takes me back to grade school, sixth or seventh grade, when, and this was before I had discovered talk radio, as far as I can remember, where I wanted to have a radio show of some kind. And for a few days I had uh, uh, some sort of a, a cheap microphone attached to an old cassette deck, and I was taking turns uh, trying to say something. I don't even remember what it was. And many of the earliest writing that I ever did was just recording stories that uh, I had written down and that me and my brother recorded and we mailed the cassette tapes back to our friends uh, in the town where we grew up in. And so that I've always associated writing with reading aloud, that that is how you share it, even if it is prose a story is meant to be read aloud just as much as uh, what we might just call a poem. Um, and that might be actually uh, why I skew and lean towards narrative poetry. I want the story and I want the lyric, but I also want it to be a poem. I want it to sing and tell a story. Um, obviously, I never got very far in doing a radio show in the sixth grade. But then uh, about 10 years later or so, 
to, yeah, about, about 10 years later, um, 10 or 12 years later, when I started to do, or when I was uh, doing a lot of poetry readings, someone showed up with uh, uh, some sort of uh, Sony thing, I can't even remember what it was called, and it recorded the audio of the reading so beautifully. And I spent a while there trying to find out what it was the person had used, what kind of microphone he had, and I never found it. But then uh, when I moved to Pittsburgh, and I had a small house, or I lived in a small house, in two rooms in a small house, and I believe rent was about $220 a month. And... I lived right next door to a synagogue, which boded well for me uh, years later converting to Judaism. And every night I would, uh, even though I had a car, I would uh, take walks, take long walks at night around the neighborhood where I lived. And one of the things that I would try to do beforehand was record myself. I was always on the on the trail of trying to find some consistent and decent way to record myself reading poetry, whether my own or other people's poetry. And the one poem I kept settling on over and over again was Walt Whitman's When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed. This was a poem that, uh, when I first went through Leaves of Grass, the first one or two times, probably, it was a poem that I really didn't notice very much, but I'm very susceptible to other people's hyperbole uh, when it comes to poetry and literature. So that if someone says, this is one of the greatest poems, this is one of the greatest authors, etc., uh, I, I won't be convinced, but I'll at least take a look. And it happened, it so happened that I came to this poem for the first time, really, after reading Harold Bloom calling it uh, one of the great poems in the language. And if we consider Whitman, and I think it's right to say, if not the greatest American poet, then at least the poet that even formal poets today still cannot get away from. He is still the one American poet that has sort of uh, influenced all of us, or if you don't like him, you can say that he is the one poet that has infected all of us. Uh, he is the one inescapable American poet. Then it's possible to say that outside of Song of Myself, which is more a small book than it is uh, what we might comfortably call a poem, um, and actually Paul Zweig has a good deal to say about that, that um, in his biography of Whitman, he makes mention many times that Song of Myself is not even meant to be a poem or literature. It's in its first incarnation as it's presented in print, uh, there, are, there is no title, there are no uh, section numbers. Um, it is meant to be life itself, you might say. And whereas that might seem like a cliché nowadays, uh, just pick up Song of Myself and see if it isn't true with that one. 
Whereas When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed is very much a poem, a literary poem, a mourning over the death of Abraham Lincoln. And so when I read this now, what I'm remembering is uh, summer nights in 2004, just before the 2004 election. Uh, it's strange to think that that election was considered to be fraught and divisive. Um, and it's also the summer where I met my wife, and I'm sure many of the times that I tried to record this poem and then walk around listening to myself reading it, I'm sure a majority of those times after I met her uh, and before I crossed the country to live with her, I'm pretty sure that the mourning that was going on, at least in my mind, was uh, for being uh, apart from her. But it's also my earliest experience of Whitman, my wish as a sixth or seventh grader to have a radio show for some reason. Where does, where does, where does the idea come from? Um, all of it all mixed together and now a sort of different and 40-year-old's uh, version of appreciating Walt Whitman. So all of that comes in here. And hopefully I can do this poem some justice. Take a drink first. When lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed, and the great star early drooped in the western sky in the night, I mourned, and yet shall mourn with ever-returning spring. O oh, ever-returning spring, trinity sure to me you bring, lilac-blooming perennial, and drooping star in the west, and thought of him my love. O oh, powerful western fallen star, O oh, shades of night, O oh, moody, tearful night, O oh, great star disappeared, O oh, the black murk that hides the star, O oh, cruel hands that hold me powerless, O oh, helpless soul of me, O oh, harsh surrounding cloud that will not free my soul. In the dooryard, fronting an old farmhouse, near the whitewashed palings, stands the lilac bush, tall growing, with heart-shaped leaves of rich green, with many a pointed blossom rising, delicate, with the perfume strong I love, with every leaf a miracle. And from this bush in the dooryard, with its delicate colored blossoms, and heart-shaped leaves of rich green, a sprig with its flower I break. In the swamp, in secluded recesses, a shy and hidden bird is warbling a song. Solitary, the thrush, the hermit withdrawn to himself, avoiding the settlements, sings by himself a song. Song of the bleeding throat, 
death's outlet song of life. For well, dear brother, I know, if thou wast not gifted to sing, to sing, thou wouldst surely die. Over the breast of the spring, the land, amid cities, amid lanes and through old woods, where lately the violets peeped from the ground, spotting the gray debris, amid the grass and the fields, each side of the lanes, passing the endless grass, passing the yellow speared wheat, every grain from its shroud in the dark brown fields uprising, passing the apple tree, blows of white and pink in the orchard, carrying a corpse to where it shall rest in the grave, night and day journeys a coffin. Coffin that passes through lanes and streets, through day and night, with the great cloud darkening the land, with the pomp of the in-looped flags, with the cities draped in black, with the show of the states themselves, and the crepe-veiled women standing, with processions long and winding, and the flambeaux of the night, with the countless torches lit, with the silent sea of faces and the unbared heads, with the waiting depot, the arriving coffin, and the somber faces, with dirges through the night, with the thousand voices rising, strong and solemn, with all the mournful voices of the dirges poured around the coffin, the dim-lit churches and the shuddering organs, where amid these you journey with toiling, toiling bells' perpetual clang. Here, coffin that slowly passes, I give you my sprig of lilac. Not for you, for one alone, Blossoms and branches green to coffins all I bring. For fresh as the morning, thus would I chant a song for you, O sane and sacred death. All over bouquets of roses, O death, I cover you over with roses and early lilies. But mostly and now the lilac that blooms the first, Copious I break, I break the sprigs from the bushes. With loaded arms I come, pouring for you, for you and the coffins, all of you, O death. O western orb sailing the heaven, now I know what you must have meant, as a month since we walked, as we walked up and down in the dark blue so mystic, as we walked in silence the transparent shadowy night. As I saw you had something to tell, as you bent to me night after night, as you drooped from the sky low down, as if to my side, while the other stars all looked on, as we wandered together the solemn night, for something I know not what kept me from sleep. As the night advanced and I saw in the rim of the west, ere you went, how full you were of woe. As I stood on the rising ground in the breeze and the cool, transparent night, as I watched where you passed and was lost in the netherward black of the night, as my soul in its trouble dissatisfied sank, as where you, sad orb, concluded, dropped in the night and was gone. Sing on there in the swamp, 
O singer, bashful and tender, I hear your notes, I hear your call. I hear, I come presently, I understand you. But a moment I linger, for the lustrous star has detained me. The star, my comrade departing, holds and detains me. Oh, how shall I warble myself for the dead one there I loved? And how shall I deck my song for the large, sweet soul that is gone? And what shall my perfume be for the grave of him I love? Sea winds blown from east and west, blown from the eastern sea and blown from the western sea, till there on the prairies meeting, these and with these in the breath of my chant, I perfume the grave of him I love. Oh, what shall I hang on the chamber walls? And what shall the pictures be that I hang on the walls to adorn the burial house of him I love? Pictures of growing spring and farms and homes with the fourth month eve at sundown and the gray smoke lucid and bright with floods of the yellow gold of the gorgeous indolent sinking sun burning, expanding the air with the fresh, sweet herbage underfoot, and the pale green leaves of the trees prolific. In the distance the flowing glaze, the breast of the river, with a wind dapple here and there, with ranging hills on the banks, with many a line against the sky and shadows, and the city at hand, with dwellings so dense and stacks of chimneys, and all the scenes of life, the workshops and the workmen homeward returning. Lo, body and soul, this land, mighty Manhattan, with spires and with sparkling and hurrying tides and the ships, the varied and ample land, the south and the north and the light, Ohio's shores and flashing Missouri. And ever the far-spreading prairies covered with grass and corn. Lo, the most excellent sun, so calm and haughty, the violet and purple morn with just-felt breezes, the gentle, soft-born, measureless light, the miracle spreading, bathing all, the fulfilled noon, the coming eve delicious, the welcome night and the stars over my city's shining all, enveloping man and land. Sing on, sing on, you gray-brown bird. Sing from the swamps, the recesses, pour your chant from the bushes, limitless out of the dusk, out of the cedars and pines. Sing on, dearest brother, warble your reedy song, loud human song, with a voice of uttermost woe. O oh, liquid and free and tender, O oh, wild and loose to my soul, O oh, wondrous singer, you only I hear. Yet the star holds me, but will soon depart, yet the lilac with mastering odor holds me. Now while I sat in the day and looked forth, in the close of the day with its light in the fields of spring, when the farmer preparing his crops, 
in the large unconscious scenery of my land with its lakes and forests, in the heavenly aerial beauty after the perturbed winds and the storms, under the arching heavens of the afternoon swift passing and the voices of children and women, the many moving sea tides, and I saw the ships how they sailed, and the summer approaching with richness and the fields all busy with labor, and the infinite separate houses, how they all went on, each with its meals and minutia of daily usages, and the streets, how their throbbings throbbed, and the cities pent, lo, then, and there, falling among them all, and upon them all, enveloping me with the rest, appeared the cloud, appeared the long black trail, and I knew death, its thought, and the sacred knowledge of death. Then, with the knowledge of death as walking one side of me, and the thought of death close walking the other side of me, and I in the middle as with companions, and as holding the hands of companions, I fled forth to the hiding, receiving night that talks not, down to the shores of the water, the path by the swamp in the dimness, to the solemn shadowy cedars, and ghostly pines so still. And the singer so shy to the rest received me, the gray-brown bird I know received us comrades three, and he sang what seemed the song of death and a verse for him I love. From deep secluded recesses, from the fragrant cedars and the ghostly pines so still, came the singing of the bird, and the charm of the singing wrapped me, as I held as if by their hands my comrades in the night, and the voices of my spirit tallied the song of the bird. Come, lovely and soothing death, undulate round the world, serenely arriving, arriving in the day and the night, to all to each, sooner or later, delicate death. Praised be the fathomless universe for life and joy, and for objects and knowledge curious, and for love, sweet love, but praise, oh, praise and praise, for the sure and winding arms of cool and folding death. Dark mother, always gliding near, with soft feet, have none chanted for thee a chant of fullest welcome? Then I chant it for thee, I glorify thee above all, I bring thee a song that when thou must indeed come, come unfaltering thee. Approach encompassing death, strong deliverous, when it is so, when thou hast taken them, I joyously sing the dead. Lost in the loving, floating ocean of thee, laved in the flood of thy bliss, O death. From me to thee glad serenades, dances for thee I propose, saluting thee, adornments and feastings for thee, and the sights of the opened landscape of the high-spread sky are fitting and the life in the fields and the huge and thoughtful night. The night in silence under many a star, 
the ocean shore and the husky whispering wave whose voice I know, and the soul turning to thee, O vast and well-veiled death, and the body gratefully nestling close to thee. Over the treetops I float thee a song, over the rising and sinking waves, over the myriad fields and the prairies wide, over the dense-packed cities all, and the teeming wharves and ways, I float this carol with joy, with joy to thee, O death. To the tally of my soul, loud and strong, kept up the gray-brown bird, with pure, deliberate notes spreading, filling the night. Loud in the pines and cedars dim, clear in the freshness moist to the swamp perfume, and I with my comrades there in the night, while my sight was bound and my eyes unclosed as to long panoramas of visions. I saw the vision of armies, and I saw as in noiseless dreams hundreds of battle flags, borne through the smoke of the battles and pierced with missiles, I saw them and carried hither and yon through the smoke, and torn off and bloody, and at last but a few shreds of the flags left on the staffs, and all in silence, and the staffs all splintered and broken. I saw battle corpses, myriads of them, and the white skeletons of young men. I saw them. I saw the debris and debris of all dead soldiers, but I saw they were not as was thought. They themselves were fully at rest. They suffered not. The living remained and suffered. The mother suffered, and the wife and the child, and the musing comrade suffered, and the armies that remained suffered. Passing the visions, passing the night, passing and loosing the hold of my comrade's hands, passing the song of the hermit bird, and the tallying song of my soul, victorious song, death's outlet song, yet varying, ever-altering song, as low and wailing, yet clear the notes, rising and falling, flooding the night, sadly sinking and fainting, as warning and warning, and yet again bursting with joy, covering the earth, and filling the spread of heaven, as that powerful psalm in the night, I heard from recesses. Must I leave thee, lilac with heart-shaped leaves? Must I leave thee there in the dooryard, blooming, returning with spring? Must I pass from my song for thee, from my gaze on thee in the west, fronting the west, communing with thee, O comrade lustrous, with silver face in the night? Yet each I keep, and all, the song, the wondrous chant of the gray-brown bird, I keep, and the tallying chant, the echo aroused in my soul, I keep, with the lustrous and drooping star, with the countenance full of woe, with the lilac tall and its blossoms of mastering odor, comrades mine, and I in the midst, and their memory ever, I keep 
for the dead I loved so well, for the sweetest, wisest soul of all my days and lands, and this for his dear sake, lilac and star and bird, twined with the chant of my soul, with the holders holding my hand, nearing the call of the bird, there in the fragrant pines, and the cedars dusk and dim. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.